Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Al Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out. I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at URM Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. My guest today, Mr. Justin Dubliek, was actually first on the URM podcast episode 104, so make sure to check that out. If you're not familiar with him, he's a guitar player, songwriter, producer, engineer, and composer. He's well known for his work in his former band, Ice Nine Kills, other bands such as Motionless and White, Seven Dust, and tons more. And along with guitar playing, JD's composition and orchestration have made its mark on many songs in the music world, adding profound levels of depth and complexity to songs of many genres. All right, let's go. Justin DeBleek, welcome back to the URM podcast. Thank you. It's been a while, but I'm glad to be back. Yeah, man, six years. Crazy. Time flies. <laughs> yeah, but you've been keeping busy. Yeah, yeah. I made a, a pretty dramatic change in my in my musical path, but for an equally as important and meaningful one. I, I left the touring world to be more involved in the creation process, which was always kind of part of what I did originally, but um, it was more like the background thing that behind closed doors, you know, we do all the creation and stuff like that. But now I'm focusing more on that because it's really been my most favorite part of, you know, being in a band just from day one back all the way back to like high school. You know, I always loved recording even if I didn't have any material, I'll just re-record the same thing over and over again. <laughs> I don't remember all the details of what we spoke about because it was so long ago, but it seemed to me like you already had a foot in that door. So I started really focusing more on production when when we basically kind of had to do a lot of DIY stuff in, in the band that I was in. And uh, I had been like studying like recording in general for many years before that, like I went to school for audio, but I took on a, a very big production role in my band, which then kind of like lit the fire of wanting to do it full time. Uh, so yeah, I had been doing it for a while, but it never became like a something I would offer to other people consistently until probably like the last few years that I was I was actively touring in a band. Got it. And what about I guess the composition process, or I mean. 
What about the orchestral arrangements and that whole side of things? When you say production, do you also mean that? Yeah, I guess I could rope that in with the same thing. I mean, production to me was always adding, creating, bringing things over the finish line, so to speak. But the composition part of it, you know, for talking more so about like orchestral arrangements and stuff, that was kind of like a lot of the same process for like any other record that we had done. There was always a need for something that we hadn't done yet. And the only way to get it done was to to learn how and just kind of like press on through it. And orchestral arrangements were the one of those things where we had our friend Francesco Farini do a, an arrangement for us on a song. Who is badass. Oh, he's amazing. He's amazing. Wonderful talent. So this guy, basically, he shared a lot of his knowledge with me early on so that I could kind of continue that process through our music. Because once we heard it, we were like, we got we to gotta continue this. We can't not do this again. So it became a necessity, but then also became a passion. I need to point something out about Francesco and about that whole interaction. So you all hire him to do an orchestral arrangement on an Ink song, right? He does it. It's badass. He basically is an open book to you mm-hmm. on orchestral arrangement helps you basically get going with it to some degree not like a long-term mentorship but uh still like very helpful and i think it's interesting because i have met people and i'm sure you have too who would not have done that who would have thought to themselves well they won't hire me next time if i help the dude and the band get better so i'm not going to answer his questions or I'm going to just half-ass answer his questions. But uh, he helped He helped you out. And uh, it's interesting what ended up happening is he did get hired by the band again, and then you went on to do more work with other bands based on the stuff that he showed you that you got started with. So every, everybody wins. Yeah, I would definitely say, and I have said before, that he was very much a mentor, whether he thought about that or not. Like He, he shared a lot of great information with me. And it, a big part of it was because we wanted him to do the rush, like the whole record. We wanted him to just fill out all the songs with more. And uh, he was working on his record at the time, which I think was King. Guy is so badass. He was really heavily involved in that, which if, if anyone's heard that record, you know there's a there's a heap of action in, in the arrangements and that's in that record. So he definitely had his hands full, but he he was gracious enough to share his knowledge with me. And since then we've been friends, we've stayed in contact and here and there, we talk about the new libraries that came out and how to control them and all the all the different things. And we share like like our setups and yeah, he's wonderful. Really great asset in the music industry to have and uh, definitely a gem of knowledge that is just totally willing to, to share. Equally passionate in music, you know? I love that. Love that about him. Yeah, me too. I find it annoying the way that most bands approach the idea of orchestration or sound design for most bands it's uh it's just like an afterthought it's like adding salt to a dish and i know that from actually talking to francesco or mick gordon and not just you know not just orchestration with anything electronic jesse zaretti we've talked about this a lot like the consensus seems to be that it's always better if all that stuff is done at the writing stage, not after the production is done. However, that's not to say that you can't make something cool after, you know, the production has happened. And But 
the ideal is when the music is composed and arranged from the ground up with these elements in mind. Uh, I agree, especially because there's like with orchestral arrangements, there's so much going on. It does become an afterthought, especially if it gets put on after the music's put together. And especially if there's like some sort of division in the band, not not like a negative division, but like something that's like somebody in the band thinks it's cool, but that's not really the main focus. They're more focused on the vocals or the concept of delivering the performances certain ways. The The orchestral stuff or the electronic stuff can really be, like you said, that afterthought. I think when, one thing that is really overlooked is really like the the ability for it to exist sonically in the mix. And I think that also is because not everybody in a band is a sound engineer, so they don't know to think of that or they don't know how to think of that or it's not something that is on their mind. But I found over the years of trying to squeeze as much as possible into songs that there really is only so much room, but with the right tools and techniques, there are ways to carve out spaces for all those things within the mix. And I think that's also kind of part of like what URM is, is doing is like sharing this knowledge with people and helping them find ways to explore uh, these possibilities, you know? And I think that it, it can be done. Uh, and as many of the other people that you've talked with have shared in, in other podcasts about it, that there's definitely techniques and tricks and things that have to be considered when making those choices to add that stuff to the music. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can only have a hundred percent of something. Right. <laughs> There's only a hundred percent of space. <laughs> Perfectly said. Yeah, you can't go past it. So you gotta figure that out. Ben, I think the trick or the the beauty or the difference maker is how people get around that problem of only having a hundred percent to fill up. I think that comes with experience too. Yep. In creating and looking back on what you've created, you can see like, oh, you know what? Maybe I didn't have to spend that much time on that decision that I was making because at this point I realized it didn't fit. You know, the more you do it, the more you realize that you're overworking yourself and not considering what the end product is really going to be like. That was, I think that was the hardest challenge for me as a songwriter and now a producer to see where the line is before you get to it, you know, so that you can leave room for things and you can make the, the right decisions to to allow all that space in the composition for not the thing that you're currently working on, but all the other elements that you have worked on or that are, you're going to add later. You know, a lot of foresight that goes into it and uh, that gets that gets easily overlooked in the earlier stages of that type of thing. Speaking of songwriting, do you find it easier to write on your own or in a collaboration? I'd say for the first half of my musical career, I would say I loved writing alone. I would say it's very different now. And it's not because I, I would rather write with somebody. I would rather write off of what somebody brings to me. Got it. Especially with like other bands. I mean, in my band, it was kind of like that. Like I would have an idea brought to me or I would have my own. We'd mix them together and we'd, we'd continue to build from there. But I love when a band has an idea of their own, even if it's just the smallest little thing or if it's some really low quality version of what their vision might be. It kind of helps spark an idea for me of where to go with it, you know, because I think, I think when, uh, it's like when you're, when you're a cook, you know, like a really good chef, you have all these ingredients to pick from, but sometimes it's hard to just decide which one do I start with because you know how good all of them are. But when someone brings you uh, three ingredients and says, can you turn this into an awesome dish? You're like, yes, because I can add that and I can add that and I can add this. And then next thing you know, the dish is done. Yeah, well, I was just thinking about, um, it's going to sound very uh, domesticated. <laughs> I took my girlfriend to a frozen yogurt place. I didn't have any 
So I was more kind of just observing wah, wah, wah. the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. I, I didn't I didn't want any. But uh, I was observing the layout and thought to myself that it is very easy to ruin what you're getting because there's so many options here. Yeah. You can get everything with everything, <laughs> which is kind of... <laughs> It would just, it made me think of how people have those types of options. I know the stupidest things make me think about work, I guess, and be at a frozen yogurt shop and start thinking about um, arrangement and production mistakes. But I think that using everything just because you can is a rookie error, basically. I, I think the, <laughs> the frozen yogurt thing is a Perfect example. Oh, think about it. But put like pineapple frozen yogurt with like tart, with like chocolate, with like cheesecake, with like cookies and cream, with like peanut butter, with like yeah. People, I see people do that. I'm like, what are you doing? It's a perfect example because like there's like this cafeteria style thing where there's more stuff at the end of the line, or there's more stuff at the end of the process, as you could say. So you think in the beginning, let's add this stuff, and then you get to the end, and you're like. But now I want all of that. I want that string arrangement in my ice cream, <laughs> but it's not going to work because it's going to taste terrible. I, I've definitely experienced that in the earlier stages of the frozen yogurt extravaganza. <laughs> no more room in the cup. But now we're pros. Now we know what to do and what not to do because we've done it so long. Yeah, the the three ingredients <laughs> thing. So on Nail the Mix, one thing that I've noticed is, uh, look, there are some mixers who have incredibly complex sessions, but... The thing is that oftentimes when they have super complex chains and routing and all that, lots of the times they're making just a series of tiny moves. So it's not like they have 16 plugins on a channel and each one is doing heavy lifting. They're all doing a little bit, but a whole lot of the mixers have very simple mixes. They're just making the right decisions. The right decisions count for everything. Yeah, I'm still finding like different ways to approach a mix. You know, I'm I don't know where I fall in the line of like some people do the top down, some people build fresh from the ground up every time, and I think I'm somewhere in the middle. But my my template was we discussed six years ago. <laughs> was very, very large. Just And that's because I had so many string libraries and orchestral libraries, percussion libraries, all like individually articulated out into its own track. So I had all this stuff to work with, but I've condensed since then and become very heavily into bus processing. You know, I mean, there's little things individually that get done, but the bus process is not only a huge computer saver, but it helps you kind of refine those small moves as you go. Yeah, I mean, I think with arrangement, with composition, with mixing, it really comes down to intentionality. And if there's a lot going on, it should be that way because it needs to be that way, right? It shouldn't just be that way because you're like, I'll add some of this and add some of that and add some of this and add some of that and uh, didn't really think it through. So you were saying that you prefer to work off of somebody else's work. And uh, I know that recently you worked on some material for uh, Motionless and White with uh, Drew Falk, mm -hmm. um, a.k.a. Wizard Blood, in which some portion of the music, Mick Gordon, was also featured. Can you talk a little bit about the collaboration process between you and Drew, if there was one, and what components of the music you were working on? So that was for Score in the End of the World, which is Motionless and White's sixth full-length album. 
And I was asked to co-produce the record with Drew. And Drew has been a great friend of mine as well. He's been a mentor in a similar way that Farini has, just very willing to share and very encouraging along the way. Um, Drew Drew has has carved space for me to be part of things over the years that um, have helped kind of shape the things that I do as well. But the process for Motionless was really actually quite enjoyable given how many people had like different uh, involvements in the in the finishing process of it. Drew and I both co-produced the record and he had a, a different kind of a different role than I did. I did a lot of the musical arrangement and and like collecting of all the different writing ideas along with my own writing ideas and Chris's writing ideas and Drew's writing ideas and kind of shaped the record sonically and performance-wise to then be delivered off to Zach Savini, who was, did a, a brilliant job mixing the record. He's such a bad motherfucker. He's amazing. And Drew was very heavily involved with the lyrics and the melodies and other facets of the music that I had come into later. So kind of like putting our puzzle pieces together just felt so so good. It felt so comfortable to like work together in different facets of the record. So that was my involvement with Drew and then later on, we were everyone was getting really excited about like the record getting to its completion stages. So we all had had a lot of powwows about tightening this up, tightening that up, and you know, as you would expect, really, really great conversations to get the record over the finish line. Uh, and then Mick Gordon, he was brought in. We had talked about trying to get him involved in a bunch of stuff earlier on, but schedules kind of kind of prolonged our ability to get him actually in. So we pulled him in for the title track of the record and we sent him this song that was put together for him to just kind of like do his thing, you know? So mm-hmm. we said, do you, he did a bunch of different production work. He replaced some stuff that we already had with cooler sounds and his uh, arrangements of things. And he actually did some musical changes towards the end of the song that really like brightened up the whole thing and gave them like a really different mood to what we originally had and it it just changed into something that was just awesome that we're like this is the perfect way to sum up the record as the title track he is unbelievably good yes and creative too like some of the things that like the wonderful thing about being a producer is when you have other people send you their ideas or send you their stems and stuff you get to kind of like see like how their brain works and sometimes when you break out all those little production ideas and those little electronic things like someone like Mick would give you'd be like on its own some of this stuff makes literally no sense but when it's all put together it's like wow he had this idea and it it came together this way like I, I can't even think that way it's remarkable I was just involved with him on something i can't say what yet but like exactly what you just said the dude is kind of a phenom with that stuff and all the layers he sends they add up to such a crazy sum you know the sum of the parts with his stuff is is really insane and the quality of it and just the creativity is i don't know what to say other than just brilliant he did something really interesting with the the one of the electronic beats of that song scoring the end of the world Mm -hmm. he actually intentionally shifted the like second kick of like two kicks it was like a type thing and he he like shifted one of them later to be like not on grid and to me like my ocd kicks in i'm like oh this doesn't make sense what's going on here but he he very specifically notated he's like i did that on purpose for for like a groove and like after a couple times listening to it i was like wow this is actually a really cool idea that I never would have thought of because I'm very grid oriented. It's just kind of like in my, in my blood to do that kind of thing. So hearing someone, you know, go against the grain and deliver something that 
after a couple listens, it actually feels much cooler to me is, is, uh, very, very interesting, but very inspiring to kind of like bend the rules a little bit, you know? Hey everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast and you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. The thing with those musical rules is like, I hate calling them rules because, you know, there are none. But the thing is, when you're used to working with a grid, there's just like, it's more like habits. There's just this musical habit that once we have our musical habits, it's really hard to kind of think outside of those or tendencies, I guess you can think of them as tendencies. You have a grid like tendency or something. It's hard. It's just hard to think beyond your own boundaries. So when you encounter someone who just did and it's good too, it's like, wait, hold up a second. For me, it causes me to like rethink everything. Another thing that I thought was really good beyond good. And I'm wondering if you discovered this too with his, uh, with his tracks was, he has a way of making things sound nasty in a really good way, but like things that other people might leave alone and they would sound okay or maybe sound plasticky in the hands of somebody else. He figures out a way to make it sound nasty and cool. I, I don't know how to explain it other than that. Just cool. Yeah. There was some really quite gross and sometimes vile sounding tones that came through on the stems. But when they, when they work together, there's just some magic in there that is just undeniable. And I think there's brilliance in that. If you can, if you can land somewhere like that, that means along the way, you're either making very calculated decisions or you're just like, it's going to sound cool. (laughs) And you get there and it does like, 
it's almost like you got to trust yourself to take that leap of faith and get to the end and then just tweak it where it really needs to be tweaked and kind of trust that it's going to be good. I kind of, I kind of like applied that along the way with writing. Like I remember earlier on, I would write music and be very calculated with every single decision along the way. Like, no, I can't do that because of this. And if I get, if I fast forward to now, I'm looking at my process where it's like, okay, well, that part of the song is all right. It's not that, it's not that cool yet, or it's just very stock or whatever. Let's move on. And then we come back and we paint over it again and become something else. So kind of trusting the process that it can get better along the way and not getting hung up on something is is a huge, uh, huge part of being able to be productive, I think. That reminds me of a conversation I had with Kevin Thrasher on the Riff Hard podcast. We're talking about writing. He said that he does this thing called writing for the trash, which is not worrying about what's going to happen with the song, like writing it so that you can just throw it away. You're not trying to write a great song. You're just trying to write, trying to write something shitty. By doing that, uh, you remove that voice in your head that will get you hung up on things. Uh, it will allow you to move on past those parts. The thing is, when you do that, you're going to come up with good stuff. You're going to come up with cool shit. You just won't get hung up on things that prevent you from getting the job done. And uh, that trust that you're talking about it is really, really important to, like you said, to be able to trust that you will make it awesome. Even if there's a section that's not awesome now, you will make it awesome and it will get there. You might just not be seeing or hearing really what the solution to that section is. And so you trust yourself enough to let yourself move on knowing that you will handle it and it will get handled. Maybe it'll be based on something that comes, you know, that you come up with later. I think it's really, really crucial to learn how to do that. Um, one thing I've noticed with amateur musicians local bands and and the such is they get too hung up on their work this is true for mixers also they get way too hung up on their work like they will work on the same eight songs for like 10 years or work on one mix for two years stuff like that and then just never finish anything never get better never really put anything out um because they're getting too hung up on everything whereas if they just kept making more kept making more, they just get better and better and better and eventually maybe actually do something with their music. Yeah, I think it's important to finish your ideas. I mean, you see this all over the internet now. Everyone's talking about with writing, like just finish your unfinished ideas just so that you have something to compare to. Because if you don't have something done to say this was shitty, you can't compare it to the next thing to say that the next thing is better or not. I think it's really important to to find some way, even if it's not a full song, finish your ideas, even for archiving purposes. I mean, even still to this day, I bet there's a lot of people that don't know this, but, you know, with Motionless and White as an example, Chris and the band will have folders of just archived unfinished ideas or songs that didn't get used for this record or parts that didn't get used. In the writing process, we'll be compiling a song and putting our ideas in and we have a hole in the song or a part that's not good enough and... You know, light bulb goes off. Oh, I, I have six different ideas that might work from my folder of mm -hmm. archived ideas. So we pull them in. And there's a, a riff in Scoring the End of the World that has, I think, a demo that was like six or seven, maybe more years old that just that didn't get used over the time. And it just fit right in the song and it's perfect. It happens all the time. Yeah. And maybe it didn't get used because it didn't fit with whatever they were doing at the time. But that doesn't mean 
it was bad. Like there, when a riff or a song doesn't get used, I think it's important to differentiate between it was rejected because it's not good versus it just doesn't fit in right now. We can't, we're like, aren't in the right place to finish this now or whatever, but it's still good. Put it on the shelf and bring it back another time. Yeah, I took this long ass break from making music and started again and recorded new music with my band for the first time in a 12 years. In working on those songs, the new Doth songs, I wanted to make sure that the music was true to the project. So one thing I did was I looked through all the old demos dating back to 1999 and got them transcribed and learned all the old songs that hadn't been used. And I thought about all the riffs that I remember from over the years that I always thought were cool and was always bummed out that nothing ever happened with them. And I kind of made an archive of all those things and used it. I kept it in mind and here and there when appropriate, some riff from 2002 would be perfect in a spot. And again, these aren't the throwaway riffs. These are just the ones that didn't make sense at the time. I think people should be archiving every single thing they write. Yeah, I agree. It's usable. It's just might not be the right time. It might not be the right song that you're trying to put it in. Yeah. And what's your take on knowing when something's not good enough? So what's the difference between something that's just not right for the project versus this sucks. I think you need to have a gauge, honestly. If you can't decide yourself within a reasonable amount of time if it's good enough or not, you need the feedback of other people because the same rule applies for when you're practicing. You know, there's a lot of people in bands that they'll practice on their own and they won't know if they're getting better or not or they won't know if they're making mistakes because they are their own judge. And if they don't know they're making the mistakes, they're not getting better. They're just continuing to practice wrong, in a sense. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I think the same goes for writing or mixing, anything. You, you need feedback from people. Sometimes ask the most simple-minded music listeners. So see if you can get feedback from people who are more experienced in the realm. You know, it's, it's you got to get thoughts from other people that you might not be thinking so that you can expand your skill set. And your your scope of your project, you know, whatever you're working on, it's it's important for other people to be able to weigh in on that so that you get perspective or else you're just kind of stuck with your own. And if it's small, it's small and you're not going to you're going to go anywhere. Yeah, totally. Just out of curiosity, when you're working with a new client and meeting them for the first time, how do you go about starting to understand what the band wants out of their work with you? The first thing that I usually do is have a conversation with the band about what they're looking for. And, and and it really helps when they bring ideas to the the session. Because uh, first thing you get an idea of is what they want to actually sound like with their riff ideas or their chorus ideas or melody. I'm, I'm like the amount of singing, the amount of screaming, you know, that usually gets talked about. But also doing your homework and knowing what they already sounded like. You know, it's kind of different if you're a brand new band. If they're a brand new band, usually it's easy. It's like, you know, who do you want to sound like? Or what do you want to sound like? What what are your favorite bands? You know, is this do you like this type of thing, that type of thing? And it actually it, it makes a lot of sense to like kind of figure out where they want to go with it. The more you're familiar with as many bands as possible, and for you know for the sake of the conversation, the scene of their music. It's like for if a metalcore band comes to me, the first thing 
that I think of is, okay, what types of breakdowns do they want? What types of riffs do they want? What kind of speed are they looking for? Do they want clean singing or do they want all screaming? Are they high screams, low screams, mid screams, layered screams? Do they want the Sturgis vibe? Do they want the Will Putney vibe? You know, just like all those different types of things. But I know to think of that stuff because I've familiarized myself with the different techniques or the different staples of the genre, you know. You have to you have to refine your tool set yep. to be able to kind of interpret sometimes like the simplest things they might say. You know, sometimes they don't really know or they don't know how to t- articulate where they want to go. But the more you know, the more you can help guide where they want to land. You know, that's a good word. Interpret. It is all about interpretation. They're coming to you because of your expertise. They're not supposed to be the producers. You know, there's something that you have that they don't have. And they might not always know the right technical terms for what it is they're going for. I mean, some musicians are great engineers, but I mean, you shouldn't look down on them or make it difficult just because their terminology isn't exactly right on. It's important to interpret what it is that they're saying and then provide what they're actually going for as opposed to what the words say they're going for. Yeah, and if they don't really know, you just try things you can kind of gauge where they might want to go by having checkpoints along your process. Like, hey, is this cool? Or have we reached a part that is fitting to what you guys are doing? Is this too heavy? Is it too melodic? You know, too fast, all stuff like that. But I also think it's important to recognize here, you know, between you and I discussing this, that what people come to me for might be different than what people go to, you know, maybe the guy down the street that's just been recording bands since high school. Like, I have people come to me partially not always, but partially because of the band that I was in or the success that I've had with different recording projects and whatnot. So I actually get a lot of music that kind of sounds similar to like what I would do or for simplicity, like another band that might be on Warp Tour. I get a lot of bands like that. So I'm very familiar with what they're trying to do, but they also are coming to me because of, you know, the name that I may have created over the years in my band. Uh, Whereas the guy down the street who could be just as successful or more or less or equally as talented or more or less may have a completely different approach to that because people go to him to record and get good quality, not necessarily because he specializes in certain facets of metalcore or pop punk or, you know, stuff like that. So I think that taking what we're saying now with a grain of salt is important because it's going to apply differently to what you're offering or what people are coming to you for. Yeah. I mean, that's actually part of why when people ask me, how do I start my production career? I live in the middle of nowhere. I want to do post-production for bands is, uh, well, if you don't know anybody, start making your own music and putting it out because that will become your calling card. People like that. They're going to want that on their music. What you put out there in the world is what you will get more of. And it's very challenging for everybody in different ways, too, I feel. Like the guy in the middle of nowhere really wants it and really has the talent to do it. The unfortunate part is they might not see that success, but they have to keep trying or they have to, like you were saying, create something that brings people in. Or maybe you just got to move, you know? <laughs> like it, it could be anything. Like it, It's hard to kind of like blueprint out the road to success with anything in life. And especially in music, because there's so many out there that are creative and talented and want to do this. And there's so many avenues to get there, but nobody has the keys to like tell you how to, how to get there, you know? So it is a risk. Have you ever moved for it? In a sense, yes. But again, part of, part of my ability to 
transfer from uh, being in a touring band to what I'm doing now is the fact that I was in a touring band that, that, you know, reached a certain level of success and attention. And that it was up to me to make sure that I had the skill set to, to prove worthy of, of, of the position. You know, uh, I did move, uh, I lived in Rochester and I currently live in Syracuse. We moved out here, bought our first house for my wife to go to school and study in environmental conservation. And I built a studio in the home. This was like our plan. Like, let's go out there. I can basically live anywhere because I've been traveling for the past 10 years. Didn't matter where I, where I was. So I built my own studio in the home. And from there, after the first year of being here was all construction. And as soon as I opened the door, so to speak, I was moving my projects from the upstairs bedroom down into the studio and I've been working full time since. And it's really just been a never stop type thing, you know, five days a week down here working any sort of capacity, whether it's writing, production, doing any sort of producing for bands or recording, writing my own ideas, developing my own projects. There's so much you can do, but geographically, there are uh, things that can hold you back if you're just trying to do like one thing. If you're just trying to record bands, you know, being in the in the middle of nowhere may, you know, create a lot of challenges for you. But if you're submitting orchestral trailers to, say, somewhere like Score a Score, maybe you can land a gig doing something like that no matter where you are, because that's just remote. That's just stuff you send in. But you got to familiarize yourself with your options and consider trying new things. I think there's more out there than people know. Yeah. I mean, people often will think, do I need to move to LA or Nashville? Constant thought. But that's like, for what? Before coming to this conclusion of, I want a career in audio or composition, I need to move to LA or something. It's like, wait a second, let's zoom out a little bit more. A career in audio doing what? For who? Maybe you don't need to be in LA. Maybe you do need to move. Maybe you're in the middle of nowhere, but what you want to do, you could do like one town over. Maybe what you want to do, you could do a country over. Uh, who knows? But it's important to be super specific, I think, about what it is that you're trying to do. You know, if you want to be the next, you know, known producer in extreme metal, maybe don't move to Nashville. You could move somewhere, but uh, Nashville might not be the best idea for that. It's important to really think about what it is that you're going for and why you would want to move to a certain place. Because I know so many people who have moved to those cities without a real plan mm -hmm. and just only stayed there a little while. And then I know plenty of people who have gone to those cities and their careers took off, but they went there with a very, very specific purpose and with a very specific plan. I really think that that's important. Like before you upend your entire life, why and what are you doing for who? Collaborations are really important too. Even if you're not the one collaborating yet, like if you're looking for an opportunity to grow Maybe you need to work for somebody or with somebody, or maybe you know a producer that is somewhere else that maybe you can collaborate with. I mean, use uh, someone like Drew as an example. Like, I can connect with Drew on a writing project with another band, but we're on the opposite sides of the country. It just depends on if, you know, there's room for something like that in the process. But the conversation still has to happen in order to achieve that potential outcome. You know, connect with people. Forums, these forums that, that are out there are amazing. And there's so many people uh, with with so many different resources to learn, to expand, and to connect with people. You know, it, it's it's also like similar to like being in a band. Like you you make a song, 
you make an EP, you want to get signed. But the process from from getting a record deal and making a record could take five to ten years. You know, you might have to make three more records before you actually get there. But no matter what, every single second that goes by, you're like, I want to get signed. I want this. I, I got to have that. And you got to understand it just it doesn't happen that quickly. But you cannot lose the momentum. You have to continue and continue on to get there. Unless, of course, you're terrible. <laughs> Man, momentum is kind of everything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for momentum was a big thing for me when I was transitioning. I was thinking, okay, I'm, I'm taking this time to build this studio. How can I do this at the same time as continuing to try to build myself as a producer? Because I was still... Uh, working on projects. I had a couple of bands that I was trying to develop and I still work with those bands today. And I had, had gotten my first uh, motionless gig post their previous record. We had we did some stuff over the summer between their album Disguise and this new one, Scoring the End of the World. And those were all done in what is now my master bedroom. <laughs> but during that time, I was building the studio at night and in the mornings between sessions and I was always thinking every single day, like, I got to get this done because I got to maintain my momentum. I can't slow down. I can't, I can't miss a chance because the music industry is not very forgiving when it comes to timing. You know, you have to, you have to keep going and you have to create some level of relevancy for yourself to continue your momentum. You know? Yeah, absolutely. That's a... <laughs> I'm just laughing because of how long I took off. But the thing is, the thing is, even if I took several years off from playing, part of why I'm not starting from zero with the band is because of everything I've done with URM and Riffhard mm -hmm. and production before that. Like, I kept the momentum going for years within music. Very relatable. I mean, it's just a transition for you to something new. Same, same with me. Yeah, exactly. But you just can't stop that's the most important thing. The moment you actually do stop doing things in music, the world moves on quickly. It's amazing how fast, actually. So as a survival tactic, momentum is everything. It definitely creates a, an anxiety you didn't realize you might have, too, while you're in the in that middle, middle process of trying to go from one to the next. You know, it definitely weighs heavy on you mentally, too. You get concerned. You get worried that, that you're falling behind, but you got to use that as as encouragement to keep trying and keep finding more, not giving up. Well, you should be concerned about that. That's important stuff to worry about. Yeah. Well, JD, I think this is a good place to end the episode. I want to thank you for coming back on. It's been awesome to reconnect with you and congrats for everything you've done. Thank you. I'm always so happy to be talking about the things that we love doing and especially with someone who's equally as passionate. So thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And I hope that anything that I've shared is relatable to, to all your listeners out there. Oh, I'm sure it is. And uh, let's not make it uh, six years <laughs> next time. You got it. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at Audio at URM Academy, and of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition, do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y and use the subject line, answer me, al. All right then. 
Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.